Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. Welcome to the Burning House Debate. We have six short talks on people from history, and we ask you to think about who you would rescue from the Burning House. First of all, Lorna Thomas will give you some more information about our characters from history and our public relations experts who are representing them. Our characters today, in order of meeting them, will be Sir Alexander Fleming, who is going to be defended by Margaret Denyer, Sir Douglas Haig, who's going to be defended by David Simpson, Niccolo Machiavelli, who Alan Freeland is going to defend. I'm doing Richard III. Queen Victoria is going to be defended by Roger Hobbs. And last, but by no means least, Richard Thomas is defending or attempting to defend Donald Trump. Hopefully an interesting and light-hearted. So I think no more to say, but to go over to you, Margaret, for your kickoff with Sir Alexander Fleming. I'm most known for penicillin, but also did much to develop the fields of bacteriology and immunology throughout my long career. I was a farmer's son. I left Scotland when I was 14 and worked as a clerk for a few years, which I hated. All changed in 1901 when I was left money, enabling me to study medicine at St Mary's Hospital Paddington. Then I joined the new research department run by Almroth Wright. An early success that you probably don't know about, about me was that I simplified the Wasserman test for syphilis and I worked on a drug called Salverson, which treated it. When the Great War started, Amroth moved us to France. Seeing all the badly infected wounds, I determined to find something to fight infection. I worked out at that stage that antiseptics could make things worse as they remove naturally produced beneficial agents. I wrote a paper in The Lancet but most army physicians took no notice. Back in the lab, I continued to look for antibacterial substances, which also had to be non-toxic. In 1921, I had a cold, and would you believe my nose dripped onto one of the plates that I was plating up? I wondered if mucus contained any antibacterial substances. I cultured a plate and found a substance that did in fact cause bacteria to disintegrate. I named it lysozyme, and then I looked in lots of other body fluids and found it there. It couldn't be concentrated enough to cure disease, so the search went on. However, later lysozyme was recognised as the first antimicrobial protein that constitutes what became known as our innate immunity system. 
Some years later, in 1928, I was doing some work on Staphylococcus and very stupidly left a plate on the bench instead of in the incubator. I later found that mould had grown on it and using a microscope saw that the colonies around it had been destroyed. I was often called a messy scientist but I could so easily have thrown the plate away and then it wouldn't have been discovered. But my curiosity and observational skills made me study it closer. Later, I said, when I woke up just after dawn on September the 28th, 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionise all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic. But I suppose that is exactly what I did. I decided that the mould produced a juice which killed the bacteria. I grew the mould and found the same effect against various organisms. Importantly, it appeared to be non-toxic to animal tissues, one of the requirements. I wasn't a biochemist and I was unable to stabilise and purify, but I saw great potential. I wrote papers and presented my findings and I called the mould juice penicillin after the type of mould, but no one took much notice. It was very disappointing. Some people say I gave up then, but I didn't. I carried on my work developing a range of bacteriological techniques that will continue to be used. Some of my samples were used as a topical application, which did indeed cure some cases of conjunctivitis. So that was probably the first success. I gave out samples to many different chemists to work on, but at the time without success. But later on, an Oxford team led by Florian Chain read one of my old papers and started using one of my samples. And eventually they did manage to isolate and stabilize pure penicillin. They got promising trial results, but could only produce small samples. In 1942, I used some of their product to treat Harry Lambert, who had streptococcal meningitis. He recovered. So this was the first successful use of pure penicillin. I published in The Lancet in 43, and this time it was not ignored. The cure was reported in the press as a drug from Oxford, but with no mention of Flory Chain or indeed me. But Flory and Chain weren't allowed to be interviewed, it was just me. So perhaps rather unfairly, it was my name only that got linked. But that aside, much more importantly was that the Ministry of Health read my paper and the War Cabinet. They realised the potential if it could be mass produced because unbelievably we were once again at war. A penicillin committee was formed in 43 and Flory and I were both invited to be members. Florian Chain went to the US and lots of money and effort was put into trying to find a way to mass produce it. They did find a different mould and managed to produce the penicillin. And by D-Day, enough penicillin had been produced to treat all the wounded of the Allied troops. 
and later it became available for general use. US President Harry Truman declared that I was one individual to whom the whole world owes a debt of gratitude difficult to estimate. I was given lots of honorary degrees and awards and held office in scientific societies worldwide. I was knighted for my scientific achievements in 44, and in 45, the work that Florrie Chain and I had done was recognized by us getting a Nobel Prize. Many lives were saved in World War II, and after that, they would have been lost without my discovery. I warned people that this wonder drug must not be used unless there was a properly diagnosed reason and that if it were used, never to use too little or for too short a time. I understood how the bacteria could become resistant to it. I do hope I'm heeded. I still carry on with my work and I've got lots more to do. I've got a little lab set up here. I really hope that you'll vote for me because I feel I've still got so much more important work to do. And now I think we need to hand over to Sir Douglas Haig. Good morning, good morning. Some call me butcher, others donkey. But my men simply called me the chief and they backed me with a gallantry and devotion that I have never forgotten. It may be difficult for you to believe, but more people attended my funeral cortege through London than lined the streets for Princess Diana. Many of you seem to have learned that the real enemy was not the German army intent on our destruction, but British generals intent on stopping it. It may surprise you, but oh, what a lovely war is not an historical documentary and that the lines led by donkey's quote is quite fictitious. My role between 1918 and my death in 1928 was that of national hero. Since then, I have been mired in controversy. As the memory of the conflict faded, my reputation changed dramatically, and I came to symbolize everything that was wrong with the prosecution of the war. I was blamed for sending thousands of soldiers to their deaths in the battles of the Somme and Passchendaele. But it was politicians who failed to deliver a land fit for heroes. So instead, they and their associates assailed my reputation but my maligned memory is finally being recovered from the ruins by modern historians in the 21st century. The army of 1914 was the best trained and equipped army we've ever put in the field, in part thanks to my reforms. Well, that army died at Mons and Ypres, repelling the German onslaught of 1914. The new army that replaced it will be an army of volunteers and conscripted civilians untrained, untried, untested in a type of warfare that was unknown. Moulding them as we did into the force of 1918 was a miracle. It should have taken five years at least. We did it in three. The learning curve that I travelled on as we sought an end to the stalemate of trench warfare was steeper than anything ever faced before by a British general. I was a general in charge of an army, but I was always at the behest of the damned politicians. I never wanted to attack in the Somme in July 1916. 
My plan was to attack in Ypres in September, a better location, a better time, and the results would have been different. But I was ordered to by David Lloyd George, that odious Welsh politico who never backed me, but nor would he sack me, as he knew I was the best British officer in the war. So instead, Lloyd George took my best generals and soldiers for sideshows in other theatres, when the only place the war could be won was on the Western Front. So why the Somme? That graveyard of my reputation? Because of the French. The French needed help continually from 1916 onwards. They were bled white at Verdun. They lost half a million men there, and yet their generals are not hated as much as I am. So I followed the orders from my political overlords and attacked in the Somme. Wrong time, wrong place. But Lloyd George never did listen to military wisdom. Some say I was hidebound, old-fashioned even, a cavalry officer who did not understand trench warfare. I say nobody understood it. But the tactics we developed in these grim struggles, the introduction of tanks, creeping barrages, infantry tank coordination, and close air support paved the way for my 100 days campaign in 1918, which, with a series of victories that are unmatched in British military history, won the war. A modern solution by a modern general, not the Blackadder version so many now take as history. More importantly, I engaged the main enemy in the main theatre of war and defeated it. The battlefield of the Western Front was unlike anything seen by Marlborough or Wellington, and only by August 1918 had the military technology caught up with the needs of the battlefield general to ensure victory. I helped train, equip and mould this great British army. We won the war, not the French or the Americans. The welfare of my men was always paramount in my mind. You probably think that my soldiers were continually in the front line. Not true. Most of the time, units spent about 10 days a month at the front, and rarely more than five days at a time. We also provided better hygiene and entertainment for the men out of the front line than did our allies. As a result, our men were fitter. Even before the armistice, I had refused all honours until my men left disabled had received improved benefits. The Earl Hague Fund I established still provides support for those wounded or widowed by conflict. My involvement in the founding of the Royal British Legion in 1921 exhibits my deep concern for the suffering of ex-servicemen. I grudgingly accept much of the criticism of the Somme and Passchendaele, Unfortunately, the very thing that led us to victory, my sheer tenacity not to move a bloody inch, also meant I made mistakes. But all the leaders of the armies involved in the Great War made mistakes, and mistakes as a general means casualties. But we were at war, and we were soldiers. And unfortunately, that means death as our constant companion. And our losses were only half of those compared with the French or Germans, when we adjusted it for population. Some see me as callous and incompetent, others as determined and devoted to duty in my men. A man who stoically bore a burden of responsibility that would have broken lesser men. 
well, I care little whether you like me or not. That sort of thing never bothered me. I doubt I will have changed many minds because the hostility aimed at me by generations cannot be overturned in just a few minutes. But I stand before you as I stood in 1918. Butcher? Donkey? No. Just a soldier making impossible decisions in an impossible war. Thank you. And now we must invite Mr. Machiavelli. Most worthy signora and signore, small may be these windows through which I see you, yet your wisdom, your humanity, and your quest for truth shine through. Nicola Machiavelli at your service. I fear you may know but little of me, and what you do know is surely soured by that mendacious, ill-named, innocent gentile. He has done me poor service. I wrote extensively and wisely on history, on diplomacy, on military strategy, and most famously on government. I will tell you more of these anon, but this feeble, innocent gentile plucked just a few quick quotations from my works to represent all my views. And now his views are how the world sees me. Oh, I am the victim of such a cruel cancel culture. My book, The Prince, explains how through the happen chance of heredity, those without any right to rule will use every devious device possible to stay in power. And I detail all those devices. My close dealings with the Duke, Césaire Borgia, informed so much of this book. My book, The Discourses, reveals how republics remain in power by splitting power, by checks and balances, by, in short, by tying the triant's testicles. Did I not say that a republic endures longer and has more good fortune than a principality? And this is to be preferred. Yet Innocent Gentile quotes only from my book, The Prince. And another, your Shakespeare, a generation hence, harries this heresy in Henry VI. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III, proclaims, I can add colours to the chameleon, change shapes with Proteus for advantages, and set the murderous Machiavelli to school. Can I do this and cannot get a crown? I am portrayed as the recommender of such behaviours, whereas I simply cautioned how princes will behave. I never said ends justify the means. If you want a pithy phrase of what I stand for, it would be ends matter, means matter, society matters. My book, The Discourses, by far my most valuable and powerful political writing, promotes the providential power of the populace. A glorious leader, like Lorenzo the Magnificent, will always be followed by a weak and malign leader, like his syphilitic son, Piero, a feeble, arrogant and undisciplined adolescent. But I'm delighted to learn that my writings have proved most valuable to Western democracy. Did not the politicians in England, after executing Charles I, and failing to find a suitable successor, consult deeply of my writings? Of course they did. They learned the characteristics of desirable government and the dangers of princely power. Isn't that amazing? Since earlier, I was drawn as the devil himself. Did not John Milburn, that great campaigner for freeborn rights during the brief English Commonwealth, say that I, Machiavelli, was worth his weight in gold? And wasn't his paper an agreement of the free people of England Yes, my ideas, it informed the basis for the basic rights as contained in the US Constitution. Didn't Thomas Jefferson make use of Algernon Sidney's 
Discourses Concerning Government, which is a complete ripoff of my work. And if you want to know why Americans have the right to bear arms, just ask me, Machiavelli. My advice was always consistent. Rulers should rule with both fear and kindness, always love and never hatred. I always taught truth to power, even if I had to douse it with sugar. I warned, if you want harmony, only an autocracy can deliver that. If you want democracy, it comes with discord. Trump that for political insight. So who am I? I lived as the feudal era became the modern era. It was a time of city-states and many wars, wars between cities, the papacy, the Holy Roman Empire, and France. Survival depended on making and breaking alliances. I was born, bred, and always will be a Florentine. And unlike many a political theorist, my writings are based on brutal, bloody experience. My political career started under Piero de' Medici, known as Piero the Unfortunate, ruler of Florence, whose despicable behavior led to the Medici's being expelled from Florence and the establishment of a republic. During this period, I was second chancellor, a minister in the Florentine government, a bureaucratic role that I excelled at and became a roving ambassador negotiating with kings, emperors and popes on behalf of Florence, or indeed on behalf of the Pope. I worked with three popes and negotiated with the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I and with King Louis XII of France. I can tell some stories of these characters. When the Medici regained control, I, like many in authority in Florence, were thrown into prison and badly tortured. For a month I was incarcerated, many of my friends were killed. But after a month, either through the power of my letters, my poetry or my friends, I was released. Did I mention I'm a renowned poet and playwright as well? Soon after release from prison, in order to habituate myself with new rulers, I sent a gift of thrushes to the new ruler of Florence, Giuliano de Domici, and along with a witty sonnet. It was one of my ways of asking to be judged on my merits, rather than by the malevolent gossip of the time. Let me read the sonnet. I am sending you, Giuliano, a few thrushes. Not because they are a good and handsome gift, but to remind your magnificence of poor Machiavelli. And if you have someone who bites next to you, you could shove my gift between his teeth, so that while he's eating that bird, he might forget to tear others to pieces. But you might say perhaps these will not have the effect that you say, because they're neither tasty nor fat, and no one would eat them. To such talk I would reply, that I too am rather thin, as they well know, but they still take a good few bites out of me. Ignore all the chatter, your magnificence. Finger and touch. Judge with your hands rather than your eyes. This sonnet is but a trifle. I am well noted for my wit and bawdy humour. My play The Mandrake was as much a success in Florence, Rome and Venice as Shakespeare's plays in London. And indeed, The Mandrake is still being performed in your day. My novel, The Golden Ass, is as much enjoyed as The Canterbury Tales. And like many of the characters in these plays and poems, I was inspired by many a muse and had a prolific love life. But alas, in recent years, my strength is no longer equal to my lust. And dear history scholar, you should know I am very proud that I work with Leonardo da Vinci, that I witnessed Michelangelo completing his statue of David, less proud that I witnessed the toppling of his statue of the Pope, but incredibly proud of my acclaimed eight-volume history of Florence, and would love the opportunity to share the wonders and trials of Florence with you. I commend myself to you. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Machiavelli. Good morning, everyone. I am Richard III, born in Fotheringay Castle on the 2nd of October, 1452. I was the 11th of 12 children, big family. I'm the son of the third Duke of York, Richard Plantagenet and Cecily Neville. Well, I have to say, it took you long enough to find me and in a car park. I mean, what exactly is a car park? I'm, I'm not sure, but I don't think it's a suitable place for a king to be buried. However, I won't dwell on my place or my former place of rest. I need to defend my much maligned reputation. So I thought instead to entertain you by means of an ode written with the help of those lovely people from the horrible histories. So here goes. I was sure that you would love me, to that hope I did cling, cause I'm Richard III and everybody loves a king. Cause I did a good job. Why do you not agree? There's a lot of people spreading nasty rumors about me. Every word is a lie. So. I'm singing this song. The history books have been telling it all wrong. Never had a limp, always walked my full height, never had a hump, and my arm is all right. Never took the crown with illegal power, never killed my nephews, the princes in the tower. Tudor propaganda. It's all absurd. Time to tell the truth about King Richard III. My brother Edward died, his kids too young to rule. So I took the throne, why not? I'm nobody's fool. Thomas More wrote a history, says I murdered Edward's boys. Shakespeare said their death was an evil ploy. I say those two were historical vandals. They ruined my image. I mean, what a scandal. I never bumped off those harmless heirs, never buried them under the Tower of London stairs, never poisoned my wife, nor bumped off her daddy. It's me, sweet Richard. Do I look like a baddie? Never was two-faced. I'm sure you'll agree. I was just misunderstood. King Richard III. Can you imagine it? I'm the last Plantagenet beaten by Henry in the Wars of the Roses. The Tudor dynasty didn't care that much for me. Now I'm painted a very, very bad E. Never forget when you hear of my crimes. Never shoved my brother in a vat of red wine. Never ever said, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Who ever said that? Well, William Shakespeare, of course. Now my tale is told, you won't hear a bad word about a special ruler, King Richard III. I'm a nice guy. Queen Victoria. Yes, good, good morning, everyone. I'm Queen Victoria. The reason for saving myself from the burning building rather than the other five is not because I'm the only woman in the house. I lived from 1819 to 1901 as Queen from 1837 to 1901. My sense of duty 
and strict moral code came to symbolise the ethos of the 19th century Britain. My reign was longer than any previous British monarch, and later I also had the title the Empress of India, the year 1877. My reign was a period of industrial, political, scientific and military change within the United Kingdom and marked by a great expansion of the British Empire. I was born the daughter of Prince Edward, Duke of Kent and Strathern, and of Princess Victoria of Saxe-Goburg. My father was the fourth son of George III. At the age of 18, I became Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. In 1840, I married my first cousin, Prince Albert. I managed to have nine children, five girls and four boys. There were 17 years between the oldest and the youngest. All of my children married into various different European royalty. My hopes were that this would help to keep the stability between the nations of Europe. In my early years, I was supported and advised by the Prime Minister of the time, Lord Melbourne. We became lifelong friends. Albert and I would have meetings with the Prime Minister of the time most weekday afternoons when we were in residence at Buckingham Palace. This kept me abreast of any UK and international news at the time. I am fluent in English, German, and studied French, Italian, including Latin. I survived eight attempted assassinations. The Victorian age brought great change with the Industrial Revolution that started in the mid-1700s, and by the 1840s, steam engines and locomotives had been invented for commercial use. In 1845, railway mania really took hold and there is an investment boom in railroad expansion which assists with the movement of materials, goods and people. The first commercial telegraph system allowing communication over long distances was patented in 1837. In 1846, the first medical operation took place under anaesthetic. Electric lighting was invented in the 1870s. In 1851, the Great Exhibition, also named the Crystal Palace Exhibition, was held in Hyde Park. The enormous Crystal Palace went from drawing plans to opening in just nine months. It cost two million pounds at the time, which represents about 290 million in today's money. There were international exhibits from all nations around the world. The Great Exhibition was the brainchild of Prince Albert. Among those on the committee were Joseph Paxton and Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Joseph Paxton was the architect who designed much of the glass structure work for the Duke of Devonshire's Chatworth estate. There were some 100,000 objects and inventions displayed by over 1,500 contributors. While only being open for six months, over 6 million visitors came to visit it, which represented approximately a third of the country's population. Some famous people of the time also visited, such as Charlotte Bronte, Charles Dickens, George Eliot, Lewis Carroll and Alfred Tennyson, just to name a few. I visited over 40 times, which gave me a great insight into the changing world of every conceivable invention and idea of the time. During my reign, there were several wars involving British troops. 
Two important campaigns were the Anglo-Afghan War of 1839 to 1842 and the Crimea War 1853 to 1856. The casualty rate of the Crimean War and the mismanagement by the top brass was very upsetting to me. The mismanagement was only brought home to me by the charge of the Light Brigade on October the 25th, 1854, at the Battle of Balaclava. Later in that decade was the Indian Mutiny. There was also the First and Second Boer Wars in the last years of my reign, with very heavy casualties on both sides. To my lasting grief, my beloved Albert died far too young at the age of 42 years in 1861 making me a widow for over 40 years. The reason for saving myself is that I have an amazing amount of experience and knowledge gained during my 63 years as Queen. That's at a great time in our global history. And I remained at the helm at the height of the British Empire with all its industrial and military might. My reign allowed this to truly flourish. You need to save Queen Victoria. Thank you. Thank you very much, Your Majesty. Moving on to our last speaker is Donald Trump. Uh, thank you. Well, it was suggested that this was done in character, but I found that impossible for three different reasons. One is that it would be entirely incoherent if I spoke of Donald <laughs> Trump. Um, the second is it would mostly be a complete tissue of lies, so that would be a bit pointless. But the third is the idea of me becoming opinionated, argumentative, Etc. Moi? No, not. It's just not possible. So I think I will. I will kind of rise above it. The sort of helicopter view by a, a senior journalist involved in in the Trump situation. It certainly does seem counterintuitive to most of us. I think to suggest we might save a chap who was a bad president and a horrible man. He was the person who cut taxes for the rich and tried to cut health care for the poor. Uh, he regularly undermined the rule of law, and this, of course. Uh, he incited the violence, which led to an attack on Congress on January the 6th. Part of his normal daily existence, he treated women, people of colour and foreigners with the utmost contempt. Uh, Trump had a transactional view of the world, which essentially means that in any situation, it's important that, quotes, I win and you lose, and that compromise is, by definition, therefore, a bad thing. He managed to stay in business before he became president by breaking promises, rarely paying his bills, and when necessary, becoming a serial bankrupt. Uh, he was happy to ruin the little people who supplied him as long as he personally survived. He also had to be the star of the show and regularly sacked senior members of his staff, including several generals when he was president, who if they disagreed with him or got better press than him, had to go. But actually, he was not all bad. In foreign policy, particularly, his very unsophisticated approach, which is a polite way of saying his complete ignorance, enabled him to cut through years of establishment thinking and concepts such as the balance of power and the importance of alliances, which were standard then, he just ignored. He could see instinctively, and, and the word instinctively is important, what the Chinese and the Russians were up to, because he thought rather like them. If you wanted to win, uh, you were either on his side or America's side, or you were against him. And this was the way he conducted his business and foreign policy. So it does mean that 
foreign policy, although unusual and often couched in very undiplomatic language, was often arguably the best possible American policy. He could see quite clearly that the Chinese were willing to break every promise they made and would fail to follow the rules of, for example, the WTO, the World Trade Organization. He knew and could see they'd been stealing intellectual property for years because he would have done the same. And he could see that their takeover of Africa and increasingly of Latin America was not benign at all. Chinese investments, investments in quotation marks, helped the Chinese in their ambition to become monopoly suppliers of certain goods and basically the main owners of scarce minerals like lithium. The Belt and Road Initiative, which was an infrastructure project, and their attitudes towards Hong Kong, Taiwan, South China Sea, provided clear evidence of Chinese ambitions. And Trump understood this. He was not perhaps quite as aggressive against the Russians because undoubtedly the Russians had something on him. We don't really know what it was, but we may eventually. Trump was jealous of the Chinese success because he wanted to have himself the same kind of reputation for effective foreign policy. Now today, rather belatedly, many countries, including the UK, are having a look at their own recent naive enthusiasm for China. Perhaps Kung Flu really was created in a lab in Wuhan. Uh, his criticism of Germany for failing to spend enough on defence in support of NATO was entirely accurate, particularly since Germany is arguably the only EU country that can afford it. Much closer to home, recently he and his family have come out in favour of the royal family and against Meghan and Harry. I suggest that a knighthood will surely be next. There's also another reason to be grateful to Trump. Throughout last year, every news bulletin was full of COVID. A few facts, some scary data, and plenty of sad and intrusive personal stories. Who was on hand to cheer us up with his antics? Donald Trump. I stopped watching the BBC 10 o'clock news last year and watched BBC World News America instead. This had a Trump-inspired story, sometimes several, every night. He kept us amused and entertained. And when he left, the news seemed very dull and very monochrome. Americans agreed. CNN even reported that its viewing figures, and therefore its profits, had halved in early 2021. So, However, despite this positive spin, the problem is that if he escapes the burning house, he might continue with his antics. He has promised a book of all books, which sounds very biblical, a wonderful memoir, which if anybody can be persuaded to publish it, will continue to pour lies into the American body politic. And he might even stand again in 2024. So I've actually changed my mind because that's too ghastly to contemplate. This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.